everybody! Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. I'm so happy that you found me, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. If you've been here before, thanks so much for coming back and spending some time with me today, and I really can't express enough how much I appreciate all your love and support. Thank you so much to all my returning viewers. I couldn't do this without you guys. Today's episode is one that was suggested by one of my viewers, Joan Guardillo Pons. It was a suggestion that was made a while back, like a long time ago, and I did my research for this video during my hiatus of construction, so I'm just getting around to it now, and I'm super excited about it because not only do I love doing viewer recommendation videos, but I love learning about things that are the premise for something that I love. Tonight's gangster, Sam DeCavacante, was the first official member of the DeCavacante family, which was the basis for my favorite show of all time, The Sopranos. Literally, it's unhealthy how obsessed I am with that show. Like, I don't think I will ever stop loving it so much. I can watch that show over and over and over and over again. So to be able to see where that comes from, I absolutely love it. So let's go ahead and dig into the true history of where the show The Sopranos came from and what it was made from and where they got the idea. Rizzo de Cavacante was born on March 3, 1912. De Cavacante was born in Brooklyn. Both of his parents were Italian immigrants, and they headed to Trenton, New Jersey when de Cavacante was still a baby, so he did grow up from a very young age in New Jersey. He got into mafia affairs extremely early. Like, I'm talking, he was a baby when he got involved in the mafia. As a kid, he made a really big name for himself in the neighborhood. If you listen to any of the podcasts of any of the Mafia Rats, they all say the same thing when they're asked about how somebody comes to be involved in the Mafia. They say that they're men that grew up in the neighborhood that they get involved in the Mafia in, and they made a name for themselves really young, and that the Mafia saw them grow up and prove themselves. Even though New Jersey wasn't officially considered a family from the five families of New York, De Cavacante always stated that he believed that New Jersey had huge potential. As a young adult, he opened multiple storefronts in Trenton, New Jersey. The one that he spent the most time at was a plumbing supply store that he had opened, and that's where he got the nickname Sam the Plumber, De Cavacante. Sam the Plumber had another nickname, The Count. He liked that nickname way better than Sam the Plumber. He actually hated the name Sam the Plumber. He hated it. And he was a lot more widely known for Sam the Plumber because people knew to go to the plumbing store if they needed to see him. But as Carmine the Snake Persico or Joe Crazy Joe Gallo can tell you, you don't get to pick your nickname, the streets do. So even though he hated the name Sam the Plumber, that's what everybody knew him by. He liked going by the name The Count because he claimed that his family had direct lineage with the Italian royal family. So, Cavacante wasn't the first boss of the New Jersey Mafia. 
but he was the boss when the New Jersey family was finally recognized as a family by the commission for the first time. Jersey used to be owned in territories rather than being one big family. It went on that way until 1937 when Gaspar D'Amico, the leader of the family that was based in Newark, was attacked by Vincenzo Troia. Joseph Perfacci was the one that ordered the hit, but Vincenzo Troia was the one that ended up getting killed for it. That's what you get for attempting to assassinate somebody. Either you get it done or it ricochets right back on you in the head. Don't look at me like that. I don't make the rules. I just report them to you. I didn't, I did not make that rule, okay? I just tell them to you. So anyway, D'Amico knows Perfacci is after him and he's like, fuck this, I'm out and he flees the United States. After that happened, the commission stepped in and gave some New Jersey territory to the New York Five families and put the family based in Elizabeth, ran by Stefano Bedini, in place as the only New Jersey family to receive territory. They didn't make them a family, they kind of made them a crew operating as an extension of a New York family, kind of like a decenna, like we see in Canada, like I was talking about in my last episode. So the same thing, just like an extension of a New York family. They're not their own family, they're just a little group that's together in Jersey. Badami became the boss of this newly formed Elizabeth Newark family until he was killed in 1955. Badami's underboss, Filippo Amari, stepped up and started to run the family. Under Amari's leadership is the first place that we start to see police reports on the family's activities. The FBI reports that the family was heavily, heavily involved in extortion, labor racketeering, loan sharking, and narcotics activity in the Newark and New York City areas. Amari didn't really get that much time as boss before he started feeling the weight of his new position. He started hearing rumblings that there was a new power struggle and a new war that was about to pop off, and Amari was like, nah bro, I don't get paid enough for this, and there was a big Amari-shaped hole in the wall on his way back to Sicily. He noped the fuck out. When Amari left, Nicholas Nick Delmore took over the family. Mind you, the Jersey crew is still looked at as a crew, it's not a family, so when I say family, I mean like a D'Chenna, whatever. I'm pretty sure that at the time, only the five families in New York and the Chicago outfit were really recognized as families at all. Maybe the Buffalo family under Stefano Magadino got some points, but Jersey is like a cute younger cousin to the five families. They're an extension. At this time, there's still a little bit of an Elizabeth and Newark family going on. There's only one rep, and that's the boss, who's Nick, but there's an underboss in each city. Frank, Fat Frank Majuri, is the underboss in the Elizabeth faction, and Louis Fat Lou LaRosa is the underboss of the Newark location. So, Nick is boss in 1957 when the infamous Appalachian meeting took place. The Appalachian meeting was held, and Nick Delmore was there, along with Frank Missouri and Fat Lou LaRosso. Nick Delmore was not a huge fan of Frank Missouri. After the Appalachian meeting, Missouri was bumped down to captain pretty much so that he would stay out of Delmore's hair. He made LaRosso the new underboss of the family, and he kind of hoped that Missouri would just, like, crawl under a rock and die somewhere. Like, he hated this man. 
Missouri ain't no punk, though. After Delmore demoted him, he just went back to his crew and chilled. Like, obviously he's pissed as hell. He's pissed. But he's been at this a while, and he's not gonna let no newbie tell him nothing. You know, you don't want me to be in a position of power. Fine. I'll sit here, kick my feet up, and do nothing. I can't really find anything about why this happened. Like, you usually can't just bust somebody down from underboss to a captain just because you don't like them. That doesn't really make sense, but everybody just talks about how Missouri was knocked down and they don't say why or anything, so I'm assuming it's just because Delmore hated his ass. So time goes on and Delmore keeps running the crew. Things are going really well, nothing too crazy happens. They keep making their money doing their usual extortion, labor racketeering, loan sharking, and narcotics activities in the Newark and New York City area. Delmore took over the family in 1957, and he led the family for the rest of his life. Nick Delmore, whose actual name was Nicholas Amoruso, sued the DA, Herbert Brownell, in 1956 so that he could become a naturalized citizen. He filed the suit claiming that he was born in San Francisco, California on December 25th, which means that he was a Christmas baby, 1888, and that he was the baby of immigrants Luigi and Providenzia Amoroso, and that the only time he ever went to Italy was when they took him as an infant to Italy when he was a few years old. So he is not from Italy. He wasn't born in Italy. He actually won the lawsuit, and he was made a naturalized citizen. In September of 1960, Delmore went to an Elizabeth bar and grill called Zini's Tavern. The owner of the bar, Alfonso Zini Caliccio, was a known person in their circle. His brother-in-law was the underboss of the family, Giovanni John the Eagle Riggi. I guess the fact that his brother-in-law was so high up on the food chain made Zini a little bit too cocky because he felt comfortable enough to disrespect him. According to versions of the story, Delmore ordered Geralimo Jimmy Dumps Palermo to go and beat the piss out of Zini to send him a message to never disrespect the boss of the family ever again. Palermo gathered up a few of his boys and went down to Zini's tavern, and they start beating the shit out of this guy. The only problem is... Zini fought back. When he started to defend himself, Palermo took out a gun and shot him. It's a toss-up on um, what happened. Most sources, including U.S. prosecutors, say that that's the case. That Zini disrespected Delmore, and Delmore ordered the hit. However, a mafia rat, Vincent Jimmy the Gent, Rotundo claimed that Zini hadn't actually ever done anything, and that Palermo went after Zini himself because he was mad that Riggi was climbing the ladder and getting higher up in the family, and he wasn't. And in order to avoid a war with the gang, Delmore claimed that he sent Palermo to kill him. Now, obviously, I have absolutely no idea what the actual story is, but either way, Zini died. That actually haunted Palermo for the rest of his life. Into the late 90s, he's caught on FBI tape bitching about the fact that he'll never be boss of the family because Johnny never forgave me for the whole Zini thing. Anyway, Delmore stays the boss of the family until he gets really sick. Even sick, he stayed the boss of the family, but he had his nephew, 
Simone, Sam the Plumber, DeCavacante step in as the acting boss of the family. Sam the Plumber was Delmore's nephew, and his uncle had always been a really big part of his family and a really big part of his life. This means that throughout his entire life, he had been involved in murder, gambling, racketeering, union shit. The whole gambit of, like, mafia relations is what this guy has been involved in for his entire life. He grew up as mafia royalty, with his uncle being a high-up capo that everybody knew would be tapped to be boss one day. That, plus the Cavacante's royal descendant name and the fact that he bragged about it to anybody that would listen, gave him a pretty decent name on the streets without him really having to do much. When his uncle got sick in 1964, he stepped up the way that Tony stepped up to be the boss of the family when Uncle Junior was the boss. He got the nod from Newark, and they acknowledged his control of the family. And again, this is still considered a crew at this time, and it was on a pop, and he had permission to do whatever he wanted, and now he's the new boss of the family. New York gave their nod to DeCavacante to put an end to the fighting that had been going on in the crew over who was going to take control of the crew now that Delmore was sick. Takavacante, much like Tony Soprano, always kept up the blue-collar aura. He never picked up on that Paul Castellano, rich man, I'm too good for you facade. It seems like DeCavacante kept the Jersey crew working very similar to the military. He would play referee to any beefs that were going on in crews all over New Jersey. He would referee in marriages to keep them from splitting up because that's a bad look if all his mobsters are getting divorces. He was a boots-to-the-ground type of boss. He would yell at his people if unnecessary violence broke out. He would yell at them if they didn't, like, look nice and spiffy. It sounds like as long as you prescribe to the right place, right time, right uniform standard that the military practices, you wouldn't get yelled at. Almost immediately after he became boss, he started pulling a massive amount of money onto the street. Some people call that Shylocking, some people call it loan sharking, but really it's just the black market Wall Street. They lend money with a weekly VIG, which is illegal because the government isn't collecting half of it as taxes. See, the government really doesn't have a problem with half the shit that criminals do, they just have a problem with the fact that they don't see money from it. That's why they put Capone in jail. Capone was never gotten on any of the crimes that he committed. Not because he terrorized an entire city, not because he killed people, not for any other reason than he didn't pay the government their cut. That's what tax evasion is. He also immediately started making new members of the family. During his time as boss in the 1960s, he doubled the number of made men in his family, until he was eventually leading a group of about 60 mafiosi. That's a pretty decently sized family for a group that isn't even considered an official family, more like a cousin of the five families. The FBI actually really respected DeCavacante. They made note of the fact that during DeCavacante's time as boss, the Jersey crew was finally recognized as its own autonomous family. They called him diplomatic and acknowledged his ability to grow the family exponentially. They described him as a father figure to the family, forcing his sons to apologize to one another when they stepped out of line or disrespected each other. And he was known for conversations that followed the rhetoric of 
pretty much like the following conversation. When there was an argument when a soldier had not shown respect to one of his capos, DeCavacante sat down with the soldier, let's say Joe, and the capo, let's say John. The conversation went like this. DeCavacante would be like, all right, Joe, you owe John an apology. And Joe would be like, ugh, okay, I apologize. And DeCavacante would be like, Joe, do you mean that? Shake hands. I won't permit it this way, Joe. I'd give my life for our people. So it seems like he really did, like, treat his group like an actual family. It seems like it's a really good way to handle things. He's not out there just, like, having a soldier beaten up because he didn't show respect. And I, personally, would have a lot of respect for the boss of my family if I was walking out of that meeting and I was Joe. Because I didn't just get my ass beat. I didn't get thrown out of the crew. All I had to do was apologize and mean it and listen to a little bit of a lecture. The trouble with the real gangsters in American Mafia history is this. If they never ratted, if they were just all good gangsters, surrounded themselves with good gangsters, and none of their people ever ratted, there's literally nothing to find out or to know about them. That's how we find out all the information that we know about people. It's either somebody rats and gives up information about them, or they rat and they give up the information about themselves. Nowadays, the rats start podcasts and talk to everybody about everything. But back then, rats just cooperated. They took the stand against their friends and then they disappeared into oblivion into WitPro. So even if those guys were mentioned by some rat that had some distant dealing with them, we didn't hear the story about them. So we just heard about their crimes on the stand and then we never heard anything about them ever again. Sam DeCavacante is a really good example of this. He was a huge, huge figure in organized crime. He was so big that he had one of the best TV shows ever made written about him and his family, but literally finding any information about him is next to impossible. That's a huge bummer because, like, obviously I find this stuff super interesting, so I would like to know all there is to know about him. But really, all I can find is what I'm going through in this episode, so I know there's a lot of information that I wasn't able to obtain. I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have a lot of stories that I don't have access to, so if you're watching this and you know stuff that I didn't go through in this video, please feel free to comment and let me know any interesting facts you have about Sam DeCapicante. I'd love to hear them because honestly, I had access to next to no information. The reason that I have access to very, very little information is because he had very little rats around him. He never turned witness and very few people in his family ever turned witness. Even though there really aren't very many rats that surround themselves with him, one jackpot that the public got was when the FBI illegally wiretapped Sam's plumbing supply store. They got hundreds of hours of surveillance tapes, but it turns out it was completely illegal for them to wiretap it in the first place. And even though they discussed multiple murders and all kinds of crimes, it was inadmissible because they didn't have the right to legally record them. The government went on to pass legislation allowing police to eavesdrop, but the law wasn't retroactive, so they were shit out of luck. The FBI got pissed that they spent all this time and energy recording these guys all for absolutely nothing. Like, they had nothing. They couldn't get even one person on any of the stuff that was said on these tapes, 
So what do you do? Do they just throw the tapes away like any normal human being would do? No. That, this is the American justice system we're talking about here, guys. Don't be silly. They didn't just throw it away and disregard the information they heard. Dacavacante actually accidentally set into motion the tapes being released to the public when he was indicted in connection to a dice game in 1966 in Philadelphia. He had his lawyers ask for full disclosure of FBI eavesdropping material on him, and since the Supreme Court had recently passed the decision to give defendants the right to access this, they gave it to him. But they also gave it to the public at the same time, so pretty much their their line of thought was like, okay, we'll produce this, but if we're being, if we're being forced to produce this, we're going to produce it to everybody. On June 10th, 1969, the FBI released 2,300 typed pages of transcripts gathered between a two-year wiretap, and none of it was admissible. Not only did they release these tapes and transcripts to the public, they offered their interpretations of the tapes. They would elaborate on conversations that could be considered confusing to the public, they gave summaries, and they let everybody know that it was in service to J. Edgar Hoover that these tapes were recorded in the first place. So they just went on a tear and tore everybody in their path up. They were pissed. A Justice Department spokesman called the transcripts the greatest revelation on organized crime since the testimony of Joseph Valachi. On these tapes, there were multiple things discussed. I'm just going to go over, like, the main points of interest. There were eight murders that were discussed. These murders were discussed in detail, including the planning of the murder, the technique that the killers used to carry out the killings, and machines that they used to dispose of the remains. One specific line says something about a machine used to turn a body into meatballs. The machine that smashes cars up, as well as the machine that pulverized garbage, were also brought up as good machines to use to get rid of bodies. Aside from the murders themselves, these killings were discussed as far as the ramifications of the killings went. They talked about how killing a once associate in a public place was something that disgraced the person that was killed, and it gave the mafia a really bad image in the public eye. They specifically talked about Willie Moretti, and I've discussed that a few times on this channel, but I'll go into it a little bit later on, and how killing him in a Cliffside Park, New Jersey restaurant disgraced him and leaves a bad taste. DeCavacante said, we're out to protect people. A lot of these guys really do look at the Mafia as a protective group out there doing the Lord's work for the citizens of the United States. It really used to be like that in Sicily, so I can't even really say anything. It's just adhering to old world values. They talked about deals and connections that they had with police and politicians, including a situation where Thomas Dunn, who was raising money for his campaign to become mayor of Elizabeth, New Jersey at the time, was paid a campaign contribution from DeCavacante. DeCavacante says to Dunn on the wire, I wish you a lot of luck. Can you use this in your campaign? Dunn would later deny having this conversation or receiving any improprietary money, and he would only specify that DeCavacante had given him a contribution a bit more than $100, which... If you're anything like me and have a tiny modicum of common sense, you know is definitely not true. 
try more like $100,000. The entire conversation that happened in the back of the plumbing supply store was caught on the wiretap. Takava Conte introduced him as the next mayor of Elizabeth. He also assured the would-be mayor that he would give him unlimited assistance in his campaign, and he asked Dunn, do you think we could get any of the city work? Dunn responded with, well, maybe. Dunn pretty much asks a favor from the family, complaining about Magnolia and La Corte, the present state senator Nicholas S. La Corte, who is running against him for mayor, and Michael Magnolia, who was the Union County Superintendent of Public Works. He harped that they were publicly stating that Dunn was connected with gambling interests. He asks the Cavacante, if you have any way of getting to Magnolia and Lacorte to tell them to keep their mouths shut, because this thing could creamy at the last minute. So if you can in some way get to these two guys to tell them to keep things out of the paper, clearly he's asking the, the crime family to throw these guys a beating or threaten their wives or do whatever they do to make them stop disparaging Dunn publicly. The subject is carried further when DeCavacante talks with Anthony Tony Boy Bellardo. And Bellardo says, the only guy I handle is Dick Gino Farina, and them guys handle the rest of the law. Even though the FBI bleeped out his name, it's pretty clear who he's talking about if you look at the context of the rest of the conversation. They were referring to Dominic A. Spana, the director of police of the Newark Police Department. They discussed to Carlo paying off Newark Mayor Hugh J. Adonizio, a congressman at the time, and DiCarlo boasts, he'll give us the city. Adonizio and 14 co-defendants pled not guilty to federal indictment, accusing them of conspiracy in collecting kickbacks from city contractors. They also discussed Carmine G. DeSapio, former New York County Democratic leader, accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars from Katina. Gerardo Jerry Catina, another captain in the family. Di Sapio was later found guilty in federal court of conspiracy in a contract kickback scandal. They talk about Joe Ziccarelli, a capo in the family, having his friend, the congressman, referring to Cornelius Gallagher to try to help with Riggi being in legal trouble. I'll discuss Riggi a lot more later on, but at this time, Riggi is just a capo in the family. There's really not much to say about him. He assured DeCavacante that he would follow up with the congressman and that if all else failed, aka they couldn't bribe a jury member, they couldn't kill a witness, they couldn't do something, that Gallagher would probably be able to help. In that conversation, he brings up the three or four federal judges that either he or DiCarlo could go to as a last resort type situation. Gallagher later said that nobody ever attempted to reach out to him about Reggie, but he did admit to a relationship with Ziccarelli after it was proven that he had two phone conversations with him. Gallagher claimed it was because he was helping Ziccarelli get his kid into medical school, so very convenient cover-up story. They're recorded discussing union payoffs and ways they infiltrate the union. They discuss strategies to collect dues from union workers and get kickbacks from employers. They guaranteed sweetheart contracts, with DeCavacante saying, well, you have to organize a plant so nobody walks in there. Then you wind up with dues every month. That's $300 a month. Another associate, Gaetano 
Corky Vestola talks about how he sells this cost to them. While he's discussing what he says to employers, he says that he tells them first what it's going to cost, then how much I'm going to save them by walking away. This winds up with the Decapicante family netting half of the annual cost. This is discussing the cost and benefits of organizing the union with medical benefits, union dues, and all of that kind of stuff that goes into a union. On the wire, they discussed the Cavacante's control of the Hod Carrier Union's local 394. De Cavacante talked to Larry Wolfson, his business partner, about how he wanted to replace Joe Spera as the business agent of the union. He said Joe was already in the position for five years, and he annoyed him by not employing mafia members working in the union, so pretty much he had to go. When Wolfson brought up that Sfera had recently been re-elected, he said something along the lines of, well, I assume you'll ask for his resignation. And Cavacante gave the nod that that's what was going on. He wanted to put Riggi in place as the new business agent, and he ended up putting Riggi in place as the assistant business agent, and then when Sfera gave up the spot, Riggi could just step right in without having to be elected. Cavacante claimed that he told Sfera, I like you, Joe but I like our people better than you. You're just one of 30 people, and I'm not going to do an injustice to 30 people on an account of you. The family also had pretty close ties to Local 242 in New York, and he planned to set up some of the guys in the Warehouse Industrial Union since it was controlled by Joseph Whitey Danzo, one of DeCavacante's really close friends. They discussed the murder of Cadillac Charlie, in Youngstown, Ohio, and how they disagreed on how he was killed, and the fact that the four-year-old son was also killed. This conversation alerted the FBI to a new mafia rule. No hand grenades were allowed to be used in murders. So even though a lot of this information is inadmissible, it's giving the FBI a lot of knowledge as to what the rules are, what the state of the mafia is. So even if they weren't able to put a lot of people behind bars with these tapes, it is highly valuable to them. During this conversation, DeCavacante shares his preferred method of execution, shooting the victim with a lethal amount of heroin and putting him behind the wheel of his car to make it seem like the person had just pulled over, shot up, and died. He suggests that while you're giving the victim heroin, you lie to them and tell them that it's truth serum to get them to confess to whatever you're killing them for. Angelo Ray DiCarlo suggests the same method, the lethal overdose, but he says, well, if you don't con him, then tell him. Now, like, you got four or five guys in the room. You know they're going to kill you. They say, Tony Boy wants to put you behind your wheel. We don't have to embarrass your family or nothing. And that's what they should have done to Willie. Everybody in attendance agrees that that's how Willie, referring to Willie Moretti, should have been dealt with. Bellardo then chimes in with, How about that time we hit the little Jew? And DiCarlo responds with, As little as they are, they struggle. Bellardo says, The boot, he's referring to Ruggiero Bellardo, his father, The boot hit him with a hammer. The guy goes down and he comes up. So I got a crowbar this big, Ray. Eight shots to the head. What do you think he finally did to me? He spit at me and said, you fuck. DiCarlo said, they're fighting for their life. 
So other minor details that are discussed are how they can scam American Express by changing names on credit cards so that they don't ever have to pay when they go shopping or eat out or anything like that. Talking shit about other members of the family so it catches all the family gossip. Two guys that go golfing seven days a week and ignore this company. The company obviously meaning the family. Discussing the clout of DeCavacanti and if he carried enough weight to get a member's son into an Eastern college. Probably the same college conversation that was going on with the senator. And contract negotiations with a young singer who is described as a boy that can sing better than Robert Goulet. It's assumed by the FBI and anybody with half a brain that that discussion was referring to Frank Sinatra. They also talked about plans to get Sinatra to put up money for a hotel in Jamaica to develop a gambling resort. A situation was discussed where a restaurant owner, Joseph Migliazza, owed the family $1,300 and wanted the family to burn down his restaurant so that he could collect $90,000 in insurance money. The job was okayed for the price of $5,000, so out of the $90,000 insurance payout he'd get, they would get $6,300. They would get the $1,300 that's owed to them and then an additional $5,000 for burning down the restaurant. They described it as giving the owner a break on the cost. They often heard DeCavacante saying things like, I would give my life for our people. His most famous quote was, honest people have no ethics. He said that in a rage, though, when police and judges wouldn't follow his rules after they had already been paid off. So they accepted payment and wouldn't do what he paid them to do. So that's kind of what made him say, honest people have no ethics. The tapes didn't only uncover criminal crimes but it also uncovered moral crimes as well. It was noted in the tapes that DeCavacante was cheating on his wife with Harriet, the secretary at the plumbing supply store. Even though the tapes couldn't be used to indict these guys on any of the crimes that they pretty much confessed to, the cops did use the tapes to get info and make it easier to obtain a judgment on the other activities. In other words, they couldn't play these tapes in court. So it's not like they could bring these guys up on the murder charges that were discussed on the wiretap, but they did listen to the tap and they would find out when and where they were about to commit certain crimes, and then that's how they would catch them in those other crimes. DeCavacante actually got off super easy. He was sentenced in 1969 to 5 to 15 years in prison after charges were brought about his illegal lottery that had been up and running and the government was able to get him to plead guilty to operating a gambling racket that produced over $20 million a year. And a state report claimed that his crime family controlled 90% of the porn shops in New York City. He was released in 1976 after spending his time in prison behaving well, and he got out early on good behavior and also because he had some health complications. When he got out of prison in 1976, he headed straight for Florida. He was having some health issues, that was actually true, and the warmer climate like Florida proved to be exactly what the doctor ordered. He got so much better when he got to Florida. There were conspiracies for the rest of his life that he was actually continuing to run the family from Florida, but he wasn't ever arrested again and he got out of jail in 1976. After he left, none of the men that stepped into his shoes were ever able to organize the family in the way that he had, turn as much profit as he had, or gain the political power 
that he held in the city ever again. John Riggi, formerly Giovanni John the Eagle Riggi, had been acting boss of the family when De Cavacante was in jail. Riggi was described as an eternally polite, well-spoken, and profoundly ruthless mafioso. He was the business agent of Local 394 at the time, and he had successfully gotten that dude to step down, so he was pretty powerful in both the family as well as the legit side of things. Takavacante officially stepped down from his position as boss of the New Jersey family in 1980, and he left Riggi in place as the new official boss of the family. He headed to Miami Beach, Florida to spend what time he had left in luxurious retirement. Riggi was a pretty good heir for Decavacante. He left a lot of rules and traditions that Decavacante had put in place. No matter how much time had passed and the world had changed around them, those rules stayed the same. It had actually gotten to the point where even Decavacante viewed Riggi holding old world traditions like that as kind of unnecessary. Riggi cozied up with John Gotti, and in the 80s, they formed a pretty close relationship. Riggi had Girolamo Jimmy Palermo in his place as his underboss, and Stefano Vitaboli as consigliere. When Riggi was convicted of racketeering in 1990 and sent to Fort Dix Federal Prison, he handed the family to John D'Amato. John D'Amato was the inspiration for Vito Spadafore Sr. on The Sopranos. If you watch The Sopranos, you definitely remember the part where one of the members of the family, Vito, was discovered partying in a homosexual club in leather chaps, and the Mafia's suspicions that he was gay were cemented when someone else confirmed that they had witnessed him performing oral sex on a crew member on a construction job that they had been working no-show jobs on. It was Meadow's boyfriend that had seen that go on at the job site. Diamato was killed in real life in 1992 when suspicions about his homosexual activities were confirmed in real life, which is probably the saddest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, people have been persecuted for as long as time goes back for being different, like a person of color, being anything except completely straight, pretty much anything that sets you apart from like a cis white man is a thing that can get you prosecuted in America. But to kill this dude because they found out he was gay? Like, that is so freaking sad. That's so sad. They made this dude acting boss before they found out, so they clearly trusted him. He wasn't a bad dude. They clearly loved him, but yeah, kill him because he's gay. Like, that makes sense. After Diamato, Jake Amari took over as the boss of the family. He ran AMI Construction in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Amari had followed Riggi around pretty much like a puppy dog for so many years that Riggi felt pretty confident that he would be able to fill his role as well as he could do himself. The only problem was that Amari had stomach cancer and everybody knew it. Decavacante died in Florida in a hospital at 84 years old on February 7th, 1997. He did end up dying of natural causes. Of course, the FBI was at his funeral writing down license plates and taking pictures of everybody in attendance, you know, getting a good look at what is next for the family. The funeral was actually pretty modest. Most of the plates were Jersey plates, and there were very few people from New York in attendance. Anthony Rotundo, Rudy Ferrone, and Joey Omasala were among the very small number of New York members to attend the funeral. 
Reggie continued to run the family from inside prison and continued even when he got out. He held control of the family until 2015, at which time he handed the family over to Charles Majuri, who sits on the seat to this day. Alright guys, so that is all I have for this guy. I can't even say a bad thing about him. Like, he honestly seems like a really awesome dude. And to be 100% honest, like, I'm really happy I got to do research on him because he's interesting and seems like a really good, caring boss. So I can't even say he was crazy or anything. He was a good dude. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, do all the things. And I'll see you next week. Bye!